The following episode contains sensitive content. It is recommended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet and the land on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the country on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast was produced in a private residence in Marrickville, Sydney, and is a completely independent production. We do not act on behalf of any organisation or sponsor. Our views are entirely our own. You're about to join a conversation between two women from Sydney, Australia, talking about losing their loved one to suicide. It is unscripted. This is ordinary people sharing their lived experience. This is Talking Lived. What do you remember about the days after the suicide happened? Do you remember much at all about the time or is it just a blur? So on the day the morning that I heard about it I guess it was you know you started to tell people uh, the general sort of ripples and shock sort of rippling through my family and friends and community and um, you know by the night I had this experience on the evening I think it was the day that she died uh, I had this experience of this sense of and so it sounds a little bit religious although I'm not actually religious at all and this sense of her kind of going to heaven you know and this sense of her oh that it sounds uh, doofy saying it like that but I had a sense that I could see her and because of all of the confusion and the sort of distress around her and her life for so long, the challenges. A lot of the time when she was alive, you just focused on the difficulties or the worries. And the, the after she died, after I'd been screaming for a few hours and things you sort of come up for air, I had this sense of, oh, wow, she was an incredible human being. You know, I felt like I really got to see who she was and I go why does somebody have to die for you to really see their truly who they were you know who they are and I don't know about you but so the next few days I guess I feel very blessed in that I had uh, two good friends who just jumped on planes from Queensland and northern New South Wales who just decided, okay, I'm coming. Uh, And they just turned up at my house and, you know, people took over. I feel very blessed to have had a community of friends that and family that kicked into gear and everybody knew, okay, this has happened. We're going to have to try and be there at the very least. And... Uh, be sort of with each other and so I feel very pleased about that Um, you know I didn't do anything much for the first few days than cry of course there was a lot of complicated things about three days later uh, Gabby's partner and his uh, mum and sisters arrived from Western Australia to go back up to the property 
They spend a day with us, um, you know, talking through, telling the story over and over again and, and coming to land on things. How did this happen? How did that happen? Everything needed to be sort of unpicked and, and everybody was feeling a kind of, you know, I think suicide just makes you feel responsible and I think everyone was feeling some sense of, oh, I should have done this if only I'd done that. And, you know, at that point in time, everyone's got that sort of thing and, of course, they're deeply, deeply sad and shocked. There's so much shock. And, of course, it took probably nearly three weeks for her funeral to happen from her death and, uh, you know, that's a very uh, long time. Um, and I didn't know it was going to take that long. So within a couple of days, people are, within a day, people are talking about the funeral, you know. And I just, it's like, I can't think about that yet. I needed a couple of days to even start to think about the funeral because it was still, like, it still hasn't sunk into my brain that she's gone and... You know that's a whole other other kettle of fish, but um, yeah, the, the those weeks between her death and when the funeral actually happened were all very busy, traumatic time. But it's punctuated by a lot of um, generosity, and you know you could see how well that uh, Gabby was loved. Yeah. It, it is a very, very weird period in time, isn't it? Because it's almost like the sharpest, most horrible and shrill noise mm. in your head. And I think that's the knowledge of what's happened, punctuated by the worst emotional static and blur. Like I, I, I wavered between having... In, freakish level of clarity about things like I was amazed at how functional I could be at certain moments tiny moments and then you it is like being washed out to sea and you're in between those two states in the days after it's real it's unreal you're talking to people as you said you're telling and retelling the same story in a way you know because you have to tell people what's happened and you want people to know people that were important um, you know, to him and to, yeah, it, I, it is like no other period of time in your life. Um, it's an out-of-body experience. Yeah, I think you put that really well, that sh shrill and then static and then, yeah, it's very exactly what it's Pain like. Pain and complete confusion. Mm, yes. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much nails it. <laughs> of things that uh, you had to do or or had to happen for you, Tanya? There was a lot, I guess the big shock about all of this, I've had people within the family die before, so it's not like we hadn't experienced death. There's a particular type of, a set of protocols, I guess, that apply to when someone dies in this way. That came as a huge shock to me. Uh, because when, and it's an unexplained death, the, the balance of power about how that experience is managed initially passes to institutions. The police are involved, they're preparing reports, they're interviewing people. In Jason's case, they wanted interviews with any um, medical personnel that he'd had contact with because he had a lot of mental health 
oversight, uh, the people that he worked with, a number of them were interviewed. Uh, we, the family, were interviewed, different aspects of his family. Uh, and, yeah, that came as a shock to me because, as you said, it takes a long time this process as well. So there's an investigation going underway. It's about more than a death. They're trying to... And look, I, I've spoken to some people after something like this has happened where those closest to the person that have died felt like suspects and were treated as such because the police mm. engage with you on that. They don't know that that person has actually taken steps to take their own life. So a very, very, it's a tricky time. Emotionally, you're feeling awful and you're also having to deal with institutions in a really, um, who are not always that sympathetic to the situation that you're in. So they're sympathetic to a point, but they've also got a job to do. So we had a lot of engagement with, um, as next of kin, with the coroner's court, mm. who had to do what they had to do in terms of examining Jason's body, preparing their reports, the police preparing their statements and so forth, coming to a briefing that they're then going to submit to the coroner's court. And that just basically had to run its course. And you you just have to play ball. You don't have any option. Yeah, well, we had a few official things I had to do as well, but... Um because I wasn't Gabby's senior next of kin, what they called a senior next of kin, uh, that was her partner. Uh, I was a little bit removed from some of those things, but I definitely got very shocked uh, because in the days following her death, as we were planning for her funeral, well, we have to put a death notice in the paper. So the first question is, oh, what date do you put on that? We don't know what date she died. Do we... Do we use um, the date she was found or, you know, was one of three dates that we could have had? And the date that she actually died on, uh, sorry, the date that she was actually found on was my niece's birthday. And I thought, oh, that would be really bad because I don't think Gabby died today. I think she died, you know, on the one of the two days earlier. And so we went to the police station and asked them, and, uh, you know, and the policewoman behind the counter, I was there with Gabby's partner and the policewoman looked at me and I said, well, what was the date of death or do you think it's possible that, you know, it was the 7th or the 8th or do you know, is there any evidence to tell us what that was, thinking that they can know from, you know, things? And she literally swiveled about 50 degrees and looked at Gabby's partner and said, well, I'll talk to you. I won't talk to her because you're the next of kin. And that just was like probably the single worst thing. It was like really, I had the worst wound on the, I've ever experienced and someone just dumped a big bucket of salt into that wound and rubbed it in because it's like what I am now, because there was suspicion on me. It's a suicide. I wasn't in contact with her or I wasn't at her place. There were police reports saying, oh, yeah, the mum the mum shouldn't be there. And, uh, you know, we asked the mum not to go. Then 
okay, there's all this suspicion on me, rather than, well, hang on a minute, the mum is there because she's desperately trying to save her life, not for the mum, but for the daughter to protect her for her own life, not because of any selfish ulterior motivation. So I think the being cast with this mistrust is like the most hurtful thing. It's like you... You could not have got this more wrong. You know, I loved my daughter. She loved me like more than anyone on the planet. We were as close as you could imagine. And I was trying to save her life. And so now I'm cast into the the devil role or the evil one role. And she's not here. I mean, if she was here, she would have been ropeable. But she's not here to defend me you know and I felt maybe she'd had so much of her role being like a single young mum so much of probably a diversion but so much of her practice was defending me you know she always defended me you know and she wasn't there to do that anymore. Immediately after the death, there's complications, definitely. How, do you, how did you navigate them? I think just the shock, um, just the underlying shock of her not being there. What was most challenging, it was the world shifted on its axis. Everything that I had counted on, I couldn't count on anymore. And... You know, we went up to Gabby's house and uh, previously, because her partner is a fly-in, fly-out worker, I'd spent a lot of time living in that house with Gabby and it felt like a second home. And then after she died, we went up there and we were in full occupation of the house. And that was very difficult for me because I felt like, oh, I can't actually do anything. It's like... I lost agency in any of part of her life anymore. Like all of my, you know, 42 years of being involved and totally engaged with this person, I was taken out of everything about their life and removed. And I think, you know, it was like I was just floundering, you know, how do I, how do I even go on? I, I couldn't even speak to people. And and I think they were watching the football and, you know, this is maybe three days after Gabby died and they're distracting from the football and chatting about everything. It's like, I can't, I mean, not that I like football that much anyway, but I can't sit here and watch football and chat about things, you know, but the rest of the world already had moved on and, you know, people were acting like, oh, this terrible thing has happened and they're just kind of being normal and I couldn't be... There's just no way I could be anywhere near near normal at all. Um, yeah, you become an outside observer, don't you? That's mm. what it felt like. I felt like I was looking in at my life from the outside. So exactly what you said, you're watching people watch football or, you know, do... And in my head, I would see things like that happen and think, but mm. don't they know that mm. he's died? The world kind of ended. Has not... Have they... Mm. Did they not get the memo? What... How... Because I can't sit there in complete and mm. just return to what I used to do before. It just, it, that's mm. gone. Mm. We've moved past that. I mean, in terms of what 
was challenging immediately after. I, those things that you talked about, being aware of what you could feel was being judged about you. I, I yes. felt that a lot in my head. It, it was in there all the time. And that filtered into some of those um, official conversations that I had to have with police because there were other members of the family who had formed a view about me and that this had all happened because of a marital breakup, because I was an awful person and because I'd walked out. And they'd been very forthcoming in saying that to the police. So when the police are talking to me, because they give you updates, so you call the police, they tell you where the preparation of things are at, you're arranging interviews with them because you have to formally go in and, and give a witness statement. That backdrop informed how they reacted and engaged with me and that really, really hurt because Jason and I had always been an incredibly close, close couple. We, we hadn't really had periods of marital discord um, we'd, we'd always been a, a real team and for it to be characterised as this having resulted because I was a selfish, you know, so-and-so, mm. uh, and, and it did, it, that, I know police are human, but they're also officials that need to kind of undertake their duties with a degree of non-bias and I definitely didn't feel that um, because there was one point where I had to get an update. The coroner's court will say, we'll call the police and get a date from them about when they think their brief will be finished. So it's weird. The coroner are probably having their conversations with them as well, but they also will urge you to kind of like, okay, get in contact with the police and talk to them about this. So there's a lot of tic-tacking back and forth. I'd call the police. They're busy people call the police, leave a message, call the police. This would go on for days. Mm. And they were in Melbourne. Jason died in Melbourne and I live in Sydney. So I, perhaps it was the complication of, you know, that, different state, who knows. Finally, the police call back. And what I got was kind of a harumph. I tried to call you, but I, I did call once, but a guy answered the phone, was what the copper said to me. And I said, you've called the wrong number, mate. Because literally there's no one in my family. Do you know what I mean? My brother wouldn't have picked up the phone. I've got daughters, not sons. And I, it was the flippant. So you've sort of got that moment that's burned into your brain where it's just like that. Ouch. Mm. Ouch. Mm. Thanks for that. Because mm. <laughs> yes. you, you feel you're having to defend something that you don't. You've totally got a grasp that's a mischaracterisation of what was happening. So you've just got to suck it up and move on because you can't then chuck a fit about it, can mm. you? Even though inside you're like, I'd really like to roundhouse kick you to the neck now. Mm. <laughs> that, that's right. I think mischaracterisation is the exact right term. And, and it is so, so hurtful. Like they weren't there when I sat for like literally 20 hours in my car in the driveway, scared to leave because I was worried she was going to do something to herself then. And I think she would have if I wasn't there. And um, this was like, you know, two weeks beforehand and yet being characterised as 
the, um, the, the menace or the problem that, you know, it's like if somebody kills themselves, then there was a problem in their life and whoever was close to them was part of that problem. Yep. And <laughs> yeah. it's, in, it's in all the media reports as well. That yes. will, it will often be oh, they just had a marriage breakup mm. or it was the result of, you know, they'd lost their job. And it's like, uh, there's a whole lot more going on. Yeah. And that's part of that oversimplification that I think they everyone wants to be able to just make sense of it and put it to bed. So they just tie it up in some oversimplification that is can You're be right. a long, long way away from reality. Well, you, you've talked about it as well, um, you know, in, in other conversations we've had about A plus B equaling C in people's mm -hmm. heads. And the conclusion always people come to is, well, A plus B, A and B weren't present in my life. Mm. So that means I'm safe. This isn't going to happen to me. Yes. So it's kind of makes you a bit cynical, doesn't it, really? Because well, it's... Yeah, that's, that is another point, Tanya. I do recognise that people, what we then become is like the target of the dread of everybody of this happening to them. And everybody assumes it's not going to happen to mm. them. And I know that because I assumed it wasn't going to happen to me. I really thought that would never happen to me. My daughter would never do that. I'm sure we've even had conversations where, many conversations where I have said, oh, God, if your kid killed himself, that would be the worst thing to ever happen. I cannot think of a worse thing to happen to someone. And when I said that, had no idea that is what was going to happen in my life. And, and it's, it's just something about the impossibility of that. And people have a, a very big dread of things going wrong. And we become then the lightning rod or whatever you call for that feeling for people. What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Well, I wish I had have understood the time frame that it was going to take for everything to unfurl. Uh, you know, you, you don't realise, I think you mentioned, you become part of a process then. You know, it's not a murder, it's not a manslaughter, but it feels very much like it's related to those things. Um, so there's a, a death, an unexplained death has to be explained and... You know, the the police pretty well said, I think on after a couple of days, oh, well, three months and the report will be ready or eight, six weeks, I think they said. And little did I know that was actually going to blow out to close to nearly two years, 18, 20 months or something like that uh, before those reports were going to be ready. Uh, I wish I had have known... Um, that, yes, you enter a legal process, you have no control of that process, you will not get any information about what happened to uh, the, how they died, you know, there might be some general talk, but you will not get the details of that. Um, you know, they allowed me to view her body on, it was Mother's Day in 2018, so that's where I spent Mother's Day, was kind of going to not identify her body, but to see her. And uh, that was very um, traumatic 
And, you know, I wish I had have known, um, I don't know, to have some agency to be able to say, look, that's a really stupid idea to go on Mother's Day to see your daughter and, you know, what kind of Mother's Day present is that? Not that any day really means anything, but, you know, every day is the same in one level, but in another level... It's like, okay, well, I will never forget that now. And my daughter would have been horrified. Gabby would have been horrified if she had known that was what's going to happen on Mother's Day. I've got the most beautiful Mother's Day cards from her, how much she loved me and appreciated me. And then, you know, that's actually what happened. She would literally turn over in her grave. I don't know. Is there anything you wish you knew then that you know now i agree definitely with what you've just said just in terms of how complex the process is and how long it takes i had no idea because in that sense it is entirely different to other deaths that have occurred within my family vastly different where the family just has a lot more control over the management the timeline um, even the, the narrative that, that sits over the death, the family has a lot more control over it when someone dies of cancer or of a heart attack. Here, you're not even control, really in control of the narrative. You're trying to drive one narrative because you've come to a conclusion, you think about what happened. That may or may not match with what the overarching big voice of the institutions will be. And that takes a long time for it to run its course. And emotionally, that's really hard. I wish I'd known how hard that emotional journey was going to be. But I also wish I'd known that actually holds up being able to live. Because um, I, Jason and I were married. All of our wills were in order. Luckily, that, that, that helped ultimately, but it didn't help in the short term because you, you are actually in a holding pattern until you've got things like a death certificate. And a death certificate is dependent on a coroner's decision. And a coroner's decision is dependent on the police preparing their brief. So there are multiple layers of bureaucracy that's let you secure the pieces of documentation for you to actually be able to manage your mortgage, pay your bills, you know, because there is... All of those things when you're married, it, it's everything, all of your finances are intertwined. And as much as there's a whole lot of rhetoric that banks and other institutions will offer up around, you know, there are, there are estate management areas within banks. Until you get that death certificate, they do not want to play ball. So mm. it, you, you really just have to continue rolling on Notify them that the person has died, but if you've got a mortgage payment, it's got to be made. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, and in fact, the, the bank that I had the mortgage on our family home with handled it so badly, I'll never bank with them again. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, it certainly it, it leaves an impression on you. Well, I think uh, Gabby's partner definitely had all those challenges as well with the legal system and... Uh, you know, I think uh, Gabby died without a will and, uh, you know, he had all the challenges and that they had a huge number of, of things that had to be dealt with. And I, 
I was removed from that, I guess, um, you know, being, being a mum. But the other thing I think about is, gee, what I wish I had have known was not to, to, to really trust your gut in that situation. If you have a person in this situation, really trust your own gut. By all means, get help. But really, don't think they're gospel. Don't think that they're infallible because the number of stories that I've heard of people who've had contact with the mental health system and have had bad outcomes way outweighs the number of people who have have managed that circumstance in their own life, in their own families, without that intervention. And, you know, I may be wrong. I, I wouldn't want to sort of stake my life on it, but I would just... I would now stake my daughter's life on it and I would say trust your own instincts and, uh, you know, if you know someone needs to be kept safe, gee, I, I don't know where we begin to say there's good help for people. I really don't because I also recognise people are in this to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. Uh, but as you said earlier, they're all humans. Anyone who's involving this is human and they will have their own perspective and their own sim simplification of things, and it's not going to necessarily be better than yours. Content development and background research by Joni Janaway and Tanya Bretherton. Sound, music and audio, pre- and post-production provided by Patty O'Rourke. If this conversation has been difficult for you, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or feelings, or if you're just having a really tough time right now, there is help out there. Lifeline is available 24 hours on their hotline at 131114. The Suicide Callback Service is also available at 1300 659 467. If you're having a hard time and not even sure how to start the conversation, remember that a trusted GP or a family doctor is also a good place to start.